0: scripture, we're going through uh, Second Corinthians and this wonderful passage, and uh, we're going to look at Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. It's printed inside your bulletin. You can follow along as I read it aloud. This is the word of the Lord. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. You know, we're spending a couple of weeks looking at this passage in 2 Corinthians, and uh, just to set it up a little bit, this is a passage where the Apostle Paul is basically making a defense of his apostolic ministry because there's people in this church that he planted that uh, they're starting to question whether Paul is a, a true or a genuine Apostle. And the reasons that they're starting to question him is largely external reasons. So they're saying, you know, Paul, you're not a great speaker. You're not a great uh, uh, arguer um, compared to these other traveling teachers. Uh, You don't seem to uh, present this philosophical system of Christianity in the most eloquent way. They're saying this, that uh, Paul, you, you can't make money based on your teaching, and you're working as a tent maker. You're working with your hands. Uh, what's the deal with that? And then they're also saying things like, and I look at your life, and you have suffered a lot. Truly, if you were a man sent by God to preach the gospel, why are you suffering so much? And so they have all these reasons in which they see Paul's life, and they're beginning to doubt, are you a true apostle? And so this this relationship between Paul and the Corinthians is, is a little bit strained. And what Paul is doing is he is addressing it it's kind of giving a defense But also in this passage, and I think what's pertinent for us is here, I think more than anywhere else in uh, the Apostle Paul's writing, you kind of get a glimpse into how he understands what it means to do ministry. And as we revisited our vision for what Good News Church is and what we hope to do, uh, I thought it would be fruitful if we can understand the heart and the perspective behind the Apostle Paul. And so uh, we've been talking about implications of the gospel and we said implications is a little bit different than application because sometimes when we approach application, we say, uh, how do I apply the gospel to this part of my life? And we are largely in control of what, how we want to apply the gospel. Implication means this, that it's not up to us to apply or to make ourselves better or uh, to self-improve ourselves. But implication essentially means this, the gospel is a power. And because the gospel message is a power, it should do something to us, That is, if we are receiving it, if we truly believe it, we can't be the same. There's implications to actually believing and receiving the gospel. So we're looking at specific implications. Last week we saw the implication of uh, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ. And today we're going to look at another implication about uh, this theme of reconciliation. Now, relationships can be hard everybody would agree on that. And if you don't uh, believe that, then chances are, I would say, uh, you probably have not been close to a person because usually the closer you are to a person, the, the more difficult a relationship can get. Uh, relationships are hard because of sin. Uh, we have egos. We have pride. We have our own desires. And oftentimes other people get in the way of those kind of things. Sin is something that divides uh, at the end of the day. Sin divides us from one another, but more importantly, sin is what divided us from God. Sin divides groups of people. Sin divides families. Sin divides friends, churches, nations, genders, racial and ethnic groups. Sin uh, is something that is a powerful force, um, and no matter how much we want to deny it, just the evidence of all the division in the world and all the conflict in the world I think, is enough affirmation about the reality of sin. And for us here today, just because we're in church doesn't mean we're free from it, right? We all have our issues with people and with relationships. And uh, as I said, people get in the way of what we want, whether that's our own sense of fairness or justice, whether it's our own sense of control, security, affirmation, love, whatever it is, people get in the way of that. And that's what makes relationship hard, I think. Uh, Your relationship... Uh, can be hard with your mom and dad and I'm sure many of us have issues with our parents. Your relationship can be hard with a boss or a colleague and I'm sure we have issues with people that we work with. Your relationship with your friends can be hard. Your relationship with your pastor can be hard. (laughs) Your relationship with uh, your spouse or your children can be hard. With your brother or your sister can be hard. Relationships, I think, are just hard. And what I'm going to guess is that most people in here have experienced maybe some kind of brokenness in a relationship and I don't mean necessarily permanent although there might be that here as well but just some kind of um, brokenness where uh, once you were close but now you're you've kind of been a little bit more alienated from one another and that means there's this relational distance between you and another person and that could translate into maybe a sense of coldness uh... A lack of intimacy, lack of kindness, maybe even a lack of respect. And I think depending on the kind of relationship that it is, uh, you may end up cutting that person out of your life completely. And maybe if it's like a family member and you always have to see them, then maybe you just learn how to deal with them, but that relationship is never truly reconciled. You see, that's a little bit of, I think, what Paul is uh, addressing here today, although not explicitly, which I think is what makes this passage all the more interesting. I said the context of this passage, there's a strained relationship between the Corinthian church and the Apostle Paul, and as I previously mentioned, this letter is so interesting, I think, especially if you're into maybe a little bit of gossip, <laughs> and you kind of say, oh, what was Paul's uh, relationship with like, with other believers and other churches uh, early on? It's kind of like reading somebody else's mail, and uh, there's a lot more response to particular circumstances here than maybe in any other letter, but that doesn't mean this letter is not theological, and he doesn't have a lot to say about the gospel and about God, but uh, he's addressing a particular situation, and I think what this letter does is it helps us see how Paul navigates it with this very, very dysfunctional church. Now, in our passage, as I said, he is not directly focused on this strained relationship that he has uh, with the Corinthian church, but his focus is actually on their relationship with God. I think he expects them to see that there are implications of the fact that God has reconciled himself through Christ with us, and therefore that ought to do something. Uh, He talks about what God did in Christ and how now we are a new creation. And his final exhortation is to say, be reconciled to God. And so these are a couple of things that uh, we're going to try to look at today. First, I think the most important thing here is uh, we want to start by looking at what God has done in Christ. And starting at verse 18, this is what he says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. I was reading a few commentaries, and uh, a lot of the commentators, what they note is this theme of reconciliation is, uh, is pretty unique with respect to Paul, and if you, at least if you compare it with uh, all the other New Testament writers. And just think about Paul's life and his, his biography. And if you're not familiar with Paul, let me share a little bit about his life. Uh, he used to be called Saul. And as uh, Saul... He was this very zealous persecutor of the church. Uh, he had a mission, but it wasn't a mission for the gospel. He had this mission to, to destroy the early followers of Jesus. Uh, he would sit by and uh, uh, he, he, he would essentially want to see early believers uh, killed uh, because what he thought they were saying and teaching and believing was so blasphemous. Uh, but then you read in the, in the book of Acts, he's on this road to Damascus, and this light shines from heaven. And he hears his voice and this voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's like, who are you, right? What is this voice? Who are you? The voice says this, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, I know this is a very dramatic uh, conversion experience. Maybe it's not normative for most people today. But I thought what was so interesting is when Jesus says, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting uh, my disciples? Why are you persecuting the people who are following me? He says, why are you persecuting me? I, that's, that's so interesting to, to think about and to understand. And that probably gave Paul a very different perspective and vantage point of the gospel because what he understands here is this. Uh, in a very unique way, he understood what it meant to be an enemy of God, a, an enemy of Jesus through his acts of persecution. And God now reached out to him and reconciled that relationship. And perhaps more unique than any other figure in uh, the New Testament, Paul understands very deeply what it means uh, to be in conflict, to be alienated, again, to be enemies with God. Now, in this passage, the active agent of reconciliation here is actually God. God is the one who does all the work. God is the one who reconciled us to himself. Reconciliation, I think, on a human level is uh, probably a little bit more complex because uh, there could be wrongdoing on both sides, and that's why reconciliation can be so difficult because... Uh, sometimes we think we're wrong 10% of the time and the other person's wrong 90% of the time. And uh, therefore, because it's 90% the other person's fault, they should make a, take the first step of reconciliation and it's, there, it's up to them to come to us and say, hey, let's, uh, let's work it out. It's only my fault, 10%. And, you know, I think due to our pride and to our egos, uh, it, it doesn't always happen that way, right? You know, I, I once heard Tim Keller, he gave advice and he said, you know, even if it's like 10% your fault, confess that 10%. Uh, and oftentimes what that does is that opens up the door to reconciliation. Yeah, I think it's good advice. And uh, probably easier said than done because I think we've all been in that situation, right, where we we feel like we've been wronged and maybe the way we responded, I, I, I understand it was wrong, but you wronged me first and you wronged me more and therefore we don't want to make that first move because uh, why should we, right? You know, reconciliation between God and uh, man and us is, I think, on the one hand, uh, much simpler than on the horizontal level. But on the other hand, it's also much more difficult. And uh, let me tell you why. You know, it's simpler because both parties are not wrong in this case. Uh, The cause for this cosmic division is ultimately our sin. It's 100% our fault, 0% God's fault. And that makes it simple because... By our logic, what that means is we should be the ones pursuing reconciliation with God, right? We should take the first step and say, hey, God, let's let's make up. But, you know, our sin is so deep and runs so deep that we will never do that. Uh, our own pride and our own egos will never uh, allow us to humble ourselves in such a way that we would do that. Uh, You know, in Romans 1, Paul says that what we do is we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And that means we kind of deceive ourselves to thinking we are better than we actually are. And what that means is we'll say things like this. You know, my sin is not as bad as other people's sin, and uh, therefore I must be in good shape. Or uh, who is to say what sin is? Uh, Everybody has their own truth and defines it for themselves. Uh, I'm I'm just going to do what works for me or we make excuses through our sin through uh, self-justification, and maybe we say things like, well, you know, I just had too much to drink, and that's why I acted that way and said those things and did those things, or, well, uh, it's it's because uh, of the way I grew up and my history and my childhood, and uh, that's the way I do these things, and, you know, of of course, not to say that these things are not factors, but spiritually speaking, uh, we are at fault, and what we're actually trying to do is kind of cover ourselves from acknowledging that we have transgressed against God, that we have offended a holy God, that we are the ones who have done complete wrong and therefore we need this reconciliation so deeply. But you see, that's why God has to be the active one, the active agent in accomplishing reconciliation. Because if he doesn't reach out to us first, in our sin, we will never reach out to him. You know, genuine reconciliation often means that there is this price to be paid because genuine reconciliation is a result of struggle. And uh, I think that's why uh, this is what I meant by reconciliation between God and man on the one hand is simpler, but on the other hand is more difficult. You know, we have to remember to hold a certain balance in scripture. Uh, You know, on the one hand, God wants to bring reconciliation to the world through the work of Christ, but on the other hand, Jesus says some pretty hard things if you think about it. He said he came into the world Uh, not to bring uh, peace, but division by sword. Uh, There is no reconciliation between good and evil, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And there is uh, still a division that needs to be maintained there. And that means evil has to be cast out and evil has to be overcome. And reconciliation is something that comes after the result of a struggle between good and evil. I get this point from a book that I have read by uh, an Anglican minister named Fleming Rutledge. And she's basically writing on the cross and crucifixion. And she tells a story about how in South Africa, uh, there was this, during the apartheid era, there was a white Dutch pastor, and uh, he found himself, you know, under convictions, he was leading his church, (coughs) excuse me, into the fight against apartheid. Eventually what they asked him to do is they said, can you preside over these very emotional and very difficult meetings uh, designed to foster reconciliation between white church members and black church members, and one of the difficulties he's, he talks about is coping with people who <coughs> who basically had this idea of uh, cheap reconciliation. Oh, thanks, Fred. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. Uh, you know, one of the, I think oh, thank you excuse me this idea of cheap reconciliation now, what is cheap reconciliation? well, uh, <clears throat> it was a kind of reconciliation where, you know, the white um, South Africans, they, they were kind of like, well, we know there's been a lot of tragedy, we know there's been a lot of pain Uh, Can we just kind of overlook that? Let's forgive and forget and move forward. And, uh, you know, he said there's this other white pastor in South Africa who thought uh, former offenses uh, should be conducted in such a way. And obviously, if you are somebody who's part of the uh, oppressed, that's not a very satisfying thing to do just to kind of quickly forgive and forget and just kind of move forward. And so what this uh, white Dutch pastor who's like leading these meetings and uh, conversations, what he says is this. He says, genuine reconciliation doesn't happen when we forgive and forget, but it happens through struggle. It happens through pain, and it happens through death. Now what he's saying there is that whenever there is alienation, reconciliation comes out of a result of going through the struggle of essentially paying a price. A price has to be paid. And that's how genuine reconciliation happens. You know, God, he is the active agent in the work of reconciliation, but where we really see the grace of God at work is when we understand the how of how reconciliation happens. And we see it in verse 21, and it says this, For our sake he made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what that basically means is he's referring to the cross, That Jesus Christ, he went to the cross and he died on the cross and that meant that he would experience cosmic struggle. He would experience cosmic pain. He would experience ultimate death for the wounds of our sin laid upon God. And even in this vertical dimension, even in the message of the gospel, even with reconciliation between God and man, what this white Dutch pastor says holds true. That there has to be struggle that there has to be pain, and that there even has to be death in order for true reconciliation to happen. Uh, in our liturgy, if you, uh, if you were here, you know, we have this place for confession of sin because here's the thing. Unless you understand your role, your role that your sin plays in terms of your alienation from God, then you will not see the immense love of God in Christ you won't understand how much privilege and how much blessing it is to be in right relationship with God because you won't see the pain and the struggle and the cost that it took to get us there. Now, if you don't see that, then the question is uh, are there implications, or if you do see that, I should say, the question is are there implications then from understanding that, from understanding that God has reconciled us to himself? And I think there is. The implication is this that your reconciliation, our reconciliation in human relationships, I think, has to become a greater priority if you're a believer. It has to be a greater priority. You know, one of the commentators I read said that, you know, when a believer of the gospel refuses to pursue reconciliation, basically what it's doing is it's undermining the very gospel they claim to believe. And I imagine that's why Paul, that's why Paul thought it was very important in his ministry as he is doing missionary work to the Gentiles, I imagine that's why he thought it was very important to bring Jew and Gentile together in reconciliation. imagine why here, Paul, he's not burning bridges with this very dysfunctional church and saying, well, I have other churches and other missionary work to uh, move on to. Because he understands that in view of God's reconciling work with us, the implication is this. We ought to value reconciliation with others. And so Paul is pursuing reconciliation with this Corinthian church. Now, what's interesting is that, You know, in view of Paul's strained relationship with the Corinthian church, and this, you know, for uh, a long time, uh, I had to think about this because I didn't quite understand this, but Paul doesn't say, be reconciled to me. What does he say? In verse 20, he says this, be reconciled to God. Not to me, be reconciled to God. Now, why does he say that? I think he seems to be making the connection again that Our horizontal relationships, it's directly connected with our vertical relationship with God. And I think he's making the point that if you are not reconciled with God, uh, or if you're not reconciled with others, then there is an issue in terms of whether you are reconciled with God, whether you're in right relationship with God. Now, again, I know relationships are messy. Reconciliation has to work both ways. In other words, you might want reconciliation, but the other person might not want it. Sometimes things get complicated. But when I say prioritize reconciliation, I'm not saying that every broken relationship is going to be restored and back to normal and mended because sometimes that just doesn't happen. But I think it means that you have to find it so important that you make every effort to pursue reconciliation with others. It means that you're willing to put in the experience of struggle and pain in order to try to achieve some kind of reconciliation. But there is something that the gospel, I think, does to us that really gives us the resources and the strength to pursue reconciliation. And we see it here in verses uh, 16 and 17. <clears throat> you know, Paul says something about his perspective, and he says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. And then in verse 17, he says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, what's interesting is that, uh, what he doesn't say. Um, he doesn't say, If anyone is in Christ... He will be a new creation. He doesn't say, one day the old will pass away and the new will come. He doesn't talk about it as if it's something that happens in the future, but he talks about it as if it's this present reality for him. He's saying, if you're a believer, you are in Christ, and if you are in Christ, spiritually speaking, you are a new creation now. The kingdom has already broken into this world And you already belong, not to this world, but to an age that is to come, that your citizenship is not in this nation or this world, but your citizenship now lies in heaven. And therefore, as citizens of a new creation, it means this, uh, we have the resources to pursue reconciliation, even with a church that is so dysfunctional. It also means this, uh, when he looks at people, When he looks at believers and churches, uh, he doesn't regard them according to the flesh, which I think is a way of saying he doesn't regard them according to uh, their, their sin, which is a present reality, but he sees them in terms of who they are in Christ. He sees them as new creation. And can you see how that could actually help us greatly in terms of pursuing reconciliation? Because how often when we look at the other person do we demonize and say, you're evil, you're horrible, you're bad, and therefore... Uh, i can 't pursue reconciliation with somebody like you, but you have this perspective and you no longer see them for what you see with our physical eyes, but you see them in the promise of Christ and who Christ will make them uh, who Christ will make them be in the new creation and you have that perspective maybe reconciliation becomes easier how does this work? you know I just saw this documentary I think it 's an old documentary but it's uh, it's about uh, LeBron James and his high school basketball team. And if you're not a basketball fan, LeBron James is a you know NBA superstar. And <clears throat> uh, you know when LeBron James was in high school, you know he was so good uh, at a very young age. I think even at the age of like 15 or 16, he drew so much attention. And when he was 16, I believe uh, Sports Illustrated. Writer or journalist or something said wanted to do a story and put him on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and uh, on that cover of Sports Illustrated, uh, you know what it said? The chosen one, right? The chosen one. And apparently that uh, that cover really blew things up in terms of like all the attention he got and all the media he got and all of these things, and people would want to watch him play high school basketball. He basically became like this huge celebrity at the age of 16. Uh, people treated him as like this uh, NBA superstar, even though he wasn't yet in the NBA, even though he didn't really accomplish all that much up until that point. People wanted his autograph. People wanted to like interview and find out everything. He kind of lived in this fishbowl since the age of 16. And uh, I kind of look at that as an illustration of maybe how Paul Uh, understood and lived and treated, uh, in particular believers, that even though LeBron James had not yet accomplished all that much, even though he was not yet a professional basketball player, people saw him as such, and they treated him as such. You know, if you are in Christ, think about this. If you are in Christ, and if you really believe in the gospel, you have been made new. That the resurrection, the power of the resurrection has already... broken into this world, and even though all of us, we have our daily struggles with sin, hourly struggles with sin, after service, you're going to walk out the door and somebody's going to make you angry. (laughs) Even though this is how we live our lives, what Paul is saying here is really quite amazing. That because of Christ, we are new. We are made new. We are a new creation. And I think that is how, actually, he can view this you know, really dysfunctional church, this Corinthian church, uh, in a way with compassion, in a way that says, I need to reconcile with this community. You know, he could have said, um, You Corinthians, there's nothing good in you. If you read, we're gonna, by the way, plug for the Bible study. We're going to study First Corinthians. Very applicable. Uh, when you read First Corinthians, uh, you're going to say, wow, these people are so divisive. They're so worldly. They're so elitist. They're so arrogant. Right? That's why the Corinthian church is very uh, analogous, I think, to maybe New York. You could say they are like the worst Christians that I've ever met, and I don't want to engage with them anymore. What's the modern equivalent? I'm going to block them on Twitter. But he, Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to try to love them, serve them, I'm going to engage them. I'm even going to rebuke them in order to reconcile with them. You know, At least uh, amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, whether you're white, black, Asian, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, married, single, artistic, scientific, whatever else has the, the potential to uh, maybe create barriers or divisions, understanding who we are Uh, in Christ is important, but understanding who our brothers and sisters are in Christ is also important, and that gives us every resource to try to pursue unity through reconciliation. Now, I know we have a long way to go, but churches, I think, really have to be able to bear witness to the world about the power of the gospel, not just in this message that we preach, but we can't undermine this message that we preach by allowing division uh, and broken relationships to pervade our communities. And uh, you know, the problem is, I think everybody says they want unity. I think everybody says they want diversity. But I don't think everybody wants to put in the hard work it takes uh, to try to get there. And it is hard work. It's pain, struggle, and death. And we look to Christ, and if we're not there, what's the exhortation to you? Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God, because from there, the implication is we can pursue reconciliation with others. Let's pray together.